Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Hello, it is Basic Folk, a podcast where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. It's Cindy House. Oh, hi. I'm the host of this podcast. Here I am, hosting away. Today we're talking to Caitlin Smith. Nashville songwriter Caitlin Smith has written for Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton, Megan Trainer and John Legend, Garth Brooks, and many, many more in her work as a staff songwriter in Music City. The dream, however, has always been to be a performer, but she was rejected by record label after record label. The labels would love her songs so much so that they would actually take her songs for their female acts to record. Raised in small town Cannon Falls, Minnesota, Caitlin's parents supported their talented daughter from an early age and even offered her college fund money as a loan for her first album. After the young musician produced three albums and paid back the loan, she set her sights on Nashville and earned that job that we talked about earlier of songwriting for other musicians. About a decade after hearing no so many times from labels, she went back to her DIY roots and recorded an EP of songs that she created just for herself in her own style. As soon as that was released, the opportunities started appearing for her, started rolling in. Caitlin realized that in order to make the leap from being a songwriter to a performing songwriter, she needed to follow her own creative arrow and stop writing songs for other people. That being said, she does continue her work as a staff songwriter. It works a different kind of muscle than her own writing, which she uh, goes into detail about in this episode. We also talk about her complicated feelings on Nashville, the country music industry, raising a family, and lifting up other female performers while doing it. Uh, also, after we finished this interview, I started up a super interesting conversation about dry shampoo and general health care, which I'm sad we didn't get on tape because Caitlin had some great advice. Anyways, Dry Shampoo and Caitlin Smith forever. We're going to take a listen to the title track from her new album, Supernova, and then we'll get to our conversation with Caitlin Smith on Basic Folk. Will you grow up, pack it all up, in a hand-me-down car? Throw out a wave and you just can't wait for your life to start. You move miles away from your parents And then you try so hard not to be like them But then it hits you one day that you miss them like hell You want nothing more than to go home again Time is like a shooting star A supernova in the dark You'd do anything to make it last 
You're from about an hour outside of St. Paul, Minnesota, in, is it Cannon Falls? Yes, yeah. Cannon Falls, Minnesota. There's like less than 4,000 people. It's a magical place. Yeah, it seems like a nice, small, rural town. So how did you like your town growing up, and how do you feel connected to it now? Yeah, I, I'm really grateful for Cannon Falls and, you know, uh, for the opportunities that it gave me to kind of just try things. I think being from a small town, you can, you can have like the freedom to, um, to, to try a lot of things and fail. And they had a lot of like really wonderful music opportunities. And so I did like county fairs, choir, um, you know, would sing any, at any kind of event as a young kid, um, that I could. And, um, you know, there's something about that community as well. It's so supportive and um, it's such a sweet little city, like on the river um, with one stoplight and everybody knows everybody. And I just like looking back at my time that I've spent there, I just, I really have a great fondness for, for being able to grow up in a tiny little town like that. And it was just, it was a gift, definitely. Have you played at the Minnesota State Fair? Yes, I have multiple times. <laughs> and actually, that was like one of the things that uh, I started doing as a, like an eight-year-old where you would I would practice my song and learn it and then perform. And it was something I did like every summer growing up until uh, I started trying out like original songs. Um, and that was exciting and terrifying and then I ended up winning the Minnesota talent contest at 15 at the fair a, at the fair that's no joke with, it was cool because it was like <laughs> I mean you're playing at the grandstand for the fin for the finals it's like 15,000 people it's a it's a big deal uh in our in our city and so that was a really that was kind of an actually a turning point uh, in my career, because people started asking for my music at that point and saying, do you have recordings of that? So Wow. I went to the fair one time a couple years ago, and I'm from Massachusetts, which is like you could fit uh, like 500 Massachusettses into Minnesota, but it was yeah, like, exactly. man, it was awesome. There was like thousands of people there and like everything was fried. Oh, it was yes. Great. It's like what they call it, the great eat together. Yeah. It just. <laughs> it was great. Um, so your parents seem very supportive of you. Your dad, was he a police sergeant and your mom worked at a school administrator, school district yes. administrator, which thinking about those two occupations with parents, it doesn't leave you a lot of room to be like a troublemaker. Right. So yeah, there's like <laughs> yeah. no crap going on. Right. What kind of parents were they? And in turn, like what kind of kid were you? I mean, you're right in saying that they were incredibly supportive, you know, my dad played a little bit of guitar and would pull it, pull the guitar out maybe once every couple months and we'd sit around and sing songs. And it was a really special early memory that I have. And my mom played a little piano. So she would play and I would sing and my, and my dad would play. And, and so at a young age, like, you know, they, lo they loved music um, and really instilled that in my brother and I, this passion for music. But 
definitely having like sergeant dad, you know, there's no crap. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I had a little, I was a little wild in my teen years. I I think I turned out okay. (laughs) Right. You do cuss in some of your songs. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, he, he's okay with that. Okay, I was good. a little more worried about grandma hearing oh. that. <laughs> okay, to talk about church. Yeah. yeah. Okay, you were singing in church when you were seven years old, which is like a lot of people's first experience in singing is in church. Where was the church in your young life? And, you know, even though you were young, I don't know if you were if the, if you were like that young and you're like I know I want to be a performer but you you were young when you figured it out. What do you think of when you think of singing in church now? Singing in church was it was the first time that I ever sang in front of an audience. And I was 7 years old and I had like a solo where I got up and sang a whole song. And I remember I remember feeling like I think I can sing on key and I remember feeling the response afterwards being like, wow, people really liked that. And that felt really fun. And like that kind of just started this like excitement around performing. Like from Um, the get go. From the get go. Like I remember it just feeling like I felt very accepted and encouraged right away. And that's a really young, young age to start, you know, church is an incredible place. And I feel really, really grateful for being able to do music there because you can try things out on Sunday morning and make a mistake. And there's a whole whole lot of grace, right? That's what the whole room is built on. (laughs) It's a whole lot of grace. And so, you know, as a young uh, artist and a young musician, you know, wanting to try things, try hitting the high note, try out a new song. Like it's a really safe place. And I felt it was very safe to grow and learn. And then into my teen years, you know, I started like leading a congregation singing together. Mm. And that's a whole nother learning experience too, which I still think is in my tool belt of like, it's it taught me so much of like connecting with people and um, almost like leading, you know, you're leading a group of people in song. And so that's like a whole nother skill set. You gotta figure out how to do, how to talk to people on stage. Um, and so, you know, when I when I look back at the church and I look back at starting at that, I, f- I really think of it as, as such a gift and I feel really grateful for that. Yeah, it's interesting to think about like the, the room is filled with grace and it kind of like helps you not develop inhibitions when it comes to performance. Because like if you think right. about like doing your first performance at an open mic in New York or something, it's like definitely right. different than if you're in front of a supportive right. audience. I always like to think when I talk to somebody who has stage fright, if they have stage fright, just to say like, well, the audience wants you to succeed. Yes, you know? totally. In, they do. In, that lo- in, in a church, like they, they definitely do, you know. Oh, they definitely do. And it's also this, yeah, like if you make a mistake, I feel like people are like, oh, it's okay. You just keep going, kid. Like there's definitely <laughs> this like continual encouragement happening. So uh, it's. It's awesome. (laughs) Cool. So you live in Nashville and have written for all sorts of musicians, country, pop, rock, and so on. However, I feel like there's like a clear connection to Nashville and country music. And I know you like country music, like your first concert was Trisha Yearwood. 
Um, what is your relationship to country music been like? Like, where did it start as a kid and how has it changed since you've like lived and worked within that world? Well, I grew up on all kinds of music. Um, it was a really a genreless house of, of rock and roll and folk and singer songwriter and country. Um, but I do remember my dad always having country radio on in the garage and it just being like just knowing all of this, all of the songs of 90s country. Um, and I also, you know, when I started performing out in my little small town, I would sing country songs, you know, like When You Say Nothing At All, Alison Krauss, or Broken Wing, Martina McBride, or I'd sing Trisha Yearwood songs. Um, and so those were some of the first songs that I really fell in love with, learned, and learned to perform. Um, and so through the years, you know, I kind of drifted away from listening to a lot of country uh, in high school. And then, you know, when I started going to Nashville and taking trips there, you know, I saw the country music scene and it's, it's like I came back to it with like a passion. I was like, oh, yeah, this is really great. Like great music, great songwriting. But my relationship with, with the genre has definitely ebbed and flowed and changed. And especially working in the industry, you get a whole different perspective. And it's just been, it's been so fun to work in a city where you get to, you know, meet your heroes and, and, and get to work with your heroes, write songs for them. But there's also the 90s country that I grew up, loved, listened to. Um, and then a lot of like, commercial radio that's that's like today's country which I you know will admittedly say I've I've struggled a bit with today's country and um, I feel like it's you know it morphed into this uh this really party anthem outside festival beer drinking like thing which is like a really really fun I feel like for some for the audience members and listeners like it's a fun like hat to put on the weekend and like do your country music festival thing <laughs> if that makes sense like bro country yeah. right so I, and, and i've been I, to a country music festival in ohio and it was very different a it's scene different for me <laughs> it's a scene and i feel like it's really fun for people to unwind put on their country hats and like play the country card and like and some people live and breathe that and that's awesome too but there's a lot of people from the city that like to just act like that on the weekends if that all makes sense i do digress but <laughs> got a lot of thoughts on this <laughs> i got a lot of thoughts on this but about country music because it really is this love hate and this struggle because you know i i'm not a bro i don't i don't live and breathe like a lot of what those songs talk about and so as a songwriter trying to make a living writing music in a town that is primarily country music, um, there's definitely this like, what do I do? Like, do I give in to, to writing this bro country even though I don't really know it? And then, and I kind of decided, no, I'm just gonna be over here trying to just write the best song I can and you guys can just do that over there. <laughs> and right. so my relationship with country music has, it has changed, but at country music at its core, I believe is, is like it's a great song that makes you feel something right and and you get and you get the pictures and you get this like really great feeling whether it's a heartache feeling or a sweet like saturday night feeling and so i still resonate with country music at its core if mm, that makes sense totally 
Love that. Sorry, that was a long no, answer. Very good. I got good. lots of feelings about that. <laughs> I'm interested what kind of music student you were. You started writing songs when you were 12, learning guitar at 13. And then what was your experience like while learning music? Like, were you a dedicated student? Were you like me and never practice? <laughs> you know, I was a band geek. And I loved music and I wanted to, I was one of those that I wanted to try every instrument. You know, I played piano first, then guitar, got an electric guitar. I played trumpet, then switched to French horn. I got a violin for a second. You know, I, I just, <laughs> I loved music. I played, you know, I've played banjo and mandolin and, and just all the instruments. I just thought, just this is, this magical thing of music is just so fun. And so as a high schooler, like I, I did, I did strangely practice, but it wasn't like, I wasn't very good at practicing like my lesson book for my piano lessons. But I found a really great teacher that kind of saw that I had a different vibe and approach to music. And so she was so wonderful. Like she would say, okay, here are, you know, these six chords. I want you to write a song this week that has those chords in it. And I want to make sure you like, and she would give me like a little bit of an outline and give me this way to like learn, which was, which was really, really cool. Um, as a, as a high school student, I was a band geek, choir geek. I did, you know, I think I had at, at one point, like independent study for band, band, <laughs> choir, like all of the, like all of the things that I could do down in the music wing, like I was down there. And, um, and then I'd spend my nights like playing guitar, learning songs from artists that I love and constantly listening to music. So, um, it was a bit of an obsession. Well, oh, and I need to add that. I, <laughs> I mean, that might, you know, we were talking about my parents and they were so, they were so supportive, but something interesting about my dad is that, you know, he, he's a, a collector. And so they have a lot of antiques in their house. They, they buy and sell antiques. And when my brother and I started getting into music, he, he kind of shift gears and just learned all that he could about guitars and instruments. And he filled our basement with probably 15 different guitars, a drum set, a piano. And so our basement was this like music zone Whoa. and it was never pushy and it was never like, you need to go downstairs and like work on your music, <laughs> kid. Like he helped facilitate and create this atmosphere for my brother and I to just create and want to be down there. So that was pretty fun. Wow, that's amazing. When you were 15, your parents, this is amazing, your parents asked if you wanted to use your college fund, which, number one, you didn't know that you had. They were like, you have right. a college fund. <laughs> Do you want to make a record with this college fund? How did that conversation come about, and how did it change your relationship with your parents? Yeah. So, you know, we were talking a bit ago about the Minnesota State Fair and winning that. And then people started asking to have copies of the music. And so, you know, I think when I talk to my parents now, they talk about how they saw the ambition. They saw that I was really committed and focused on this. And so they thought of it kind of as like a great 
school of rock and roll. Like, here, make this record. You know, you've been writing these songs and let's teach you about, you know. It was really great because they didn't just give me the money. They're like, let's teach you about recouping too and making a record, but then also like selling it and paying back your debt. And and so um, it was like really exciting, like a dream come true as a 15-year-old to be like, really? I can go make my own record. This is so cool. But it really was better, I I think, than any college education would have given me because you're, I was actually doing it. I was like writing the songs, learning how the whole process goes down, you know, as a 15-year-old. I feel extremely like thankful that my parents like took that risk. It's pretty crazy. But I love that my that my approach the approach that my parents took of like you can't just have this money like you need to go and take your music and work it baby. So. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> um you were also playing clubs in Minneapolis and trying to watch all the local bands play when you were a teenager and I haven't spent a ton of time in Minneapolis, but just from afar, that music scene in that city is pretty cool. How did that time in your life help you build and define a music community that you wanted to be a part of, like connecting with those musicians and those venues? How did that help you in the future? Not not even just like the connection, the specific connections themselves, but like the act of like wanting to connect with other musicians. Yeah. I remember um, being underage and um, playing a couple of those clubs. You get the X's on your hands, like you, you can't wake drink up the next here, morning. Oh, it's on your face, face for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you know, and and feeling like so. I remember feeling so mature, so big. Like I get to play in these bars, these clubs, like, and it feeling really. Um, I felt very like, I can't even think of the word and I do words for my job, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, like a great respect for these venues because bands that I love play here. That's a cool thing. Um, and so being able to connect and cut my teeth in these venues was just a really special thing. And I, I remember sneaking into some of the clubs on nights that, you know, they card you at the door. And so I just like sneak in the back door, have like a friend in a band, like let me in downstairs (laughs) because I just, I just couldn't get enough. And I wanted to see live shows and see my friends play and experience the club scene, experience the whole thing. And I remember paying close attention to the Minneapolis scene and, and, and that created, you know, like, oh, I really want to be like this band. They're playing it this this venue and like I I did a lot of just kind of studying of what other artists are doing in my community and then wanting to emulate it wanting to do that too um but then you know my whole band that I tour with they're all from Minneapolis they all live in Minneapolis and so I've kept that Minneapolis route throughout my whole career I mean I want to try and figure out I, I mean we're trying to figure out how to get a place in Minnesota and Nashville as well because we just love it so much. <laughs> I can understand. Yeah, it's the best. <laughs> you got married in 2009. How do you say your husband's name before I mess it up? Raleigh Galswick. Raleigh Galswick, also a musician. Yes. When did you meet your husband? How did you guys meet? It's a funny story. We met in 2006 and he 
came to a show <laughs> and he was a good friend of my keyboard player and so he was like all right I'll check out your, this band you're playing in and um you know we ended up hanging out afterwards and then um you know months went by and then he invited me to come play or sing at some event and so we connected again and and then we started doing music together in Minneapolis where um you know we would play shows together and it was just very natural and um and then the rest is history yeah. we fell in love and now we've been married ele almost 11 wow. years have two babies <laughs> and we you know he's in my touring band and so um yeah so nashville you made some trips there which is just a quick 14 hour drive just a quick 14 <laughs> 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 and decided that that was the place for you. You moved in 2013. Can you talk about the transition from Minneapolis, St. Paul to Nashville? Was it a hard move? Was it a hard move? I think, well, yes, in the in the sense of it's the first time I moved really far away from family. And Raleigh and I had just gotten married and we've only been married six months I got a public, uh, I gotten a publishing deal offer. And so um, we decided, all right, let's go. And it was both, you know, we had both been dreaming this for, for a while. And so it was really exciting um, to kind of set off on this new adventure together. And so we packed up the U-Haul and drove the 14 hours. And, um, and I remember, you know, Nashville can be a tricky town relationally and I, I've had people tell me that before you know it's it's hard to find like true good friends um that you know you've got your co-writers people you work with but are they gonna like come to your birthday party kind of friends if that makes sense mm -hmm. like friends that you're gonna call when you're really bummed out and so you know we we struggled a little bit like finding our circle of people and so moving there newly married um you know, writing songs, Raleigh's producing stuff. He's got a, like, he's got an internship at Blackbird Studios. We're just like, I don't know what we're doing, and we, but we had each other, and that was the beautiful, the beautiful thing. <laughs> you started writing songs for other people. In fact, you and Raleigh wrote a song for Cassidy Pope that allowed you to move full time. And you were or are a, a staff songwriter? I am, yep. So you have written over 500 songs? Does that sound like an accurate number? Prop, I mean, it might be closer to double that. Wow. I think, I mean, if you, I guess I've been a staff songwriter for over 10 years, and you would probably guess 100 to 125 songs a year. For 10 years so that's that's, that's over like yeah a that's over a thousand sure. yeah okay um that's a lot, <laughs> that's a lot of songs. <laughs> um you've written songs for people like dolly parton james bay garth brooks megan trainer john legend as a songwriter what was what's your day-to-day -day life like and how did writing all those songs change the writing experience for you oh wow that's a question i don't think i've ever been asked well the day-to-day -day, that's easy I always have my songwriting antennas up. 
And um, it's annoying to some people close to me because I'll go off in this, in this zone and I'll just be not listening to the conversation because I've thought of some song idea. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like someone says something and it really sparks, you know, it sparks a, an idea. And so I've constantly, I've got a list in my phone that I constantly like keep little titles or, you know, song concepts. But, you know, having someone love a song enough to want to record it themselves is still um, something that's beyond me. It still feels like Christmas every single time someone actually wants to sing one of my songs. I, I mean, to hear like some of my heroes and some of these artists like sing my songs, it almost feels not real. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it sometimes changes the songwriting process in the sense of like, if I've written, if I've written like a song that becomes a hit with like another person or two other people, and then we get in the room again to write a song after the song's been a hit, if this makes sense, there's like no pressure. We're just going to try and write another hit. Like, it's yeah. like, there's a little bit of weirdness of like, let's try and make it that happen again. And you kind of got to get that out of your head. And I've learned like, each writing session, you just got to like approach like, cool, that happened, but that's in the past. What do I have to offer today? And so it's been a little of a learning process to like figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, I was just wondering like, because I mean, songwriting for musicians and singer songwriters is like such a like sacred emotional process. And I know that like it's different when you write for other people people than when you write for yourself but like does it ever just sort of like a slog it definitely it comes in waves the writing process and some seasons you know even I feel like I'm in a season right now where I feel really really inspired and I feel like writing comes easy but there are seasons where it's just a struggle and you know it's it's hard to be inspired it's hard to and it's usually in those times that I find I'm not doing enough living and I'm just working too hard right. and too focused. Um, and that's a great, it's a great time to push pause and take a vacation, to go <laughs> spend more time, to go home to Minnesota, um, to kind of just do a reset. And so, you know, the 10 year cycle of my, my writing career has been a lot of like, okay, we're hunkered down in Nashville, we're writing for a while. Okay, let's get out. Okay, let's do something else. <laughs> That's cool. Um, yeah. What's ironic <laughs> to me is like you made three albums yourself that you released and recorded like before you were 19, like the definition of like an indie artist. And then when you went to Nashville, you were looking for like a record deal and you didn't get any interest. But then you were like, well... I'm just going to put out an EP on my own. And then like, that's when things started happening for you. No question. Just like, it's just like kind of ironic that you went back to how you were releasing music before. And then that's when you got your record deal. It is so strange. <laughs> it's, you know, but I feel grateful for the long and winding road and the process that it took to get me back to that place where I'm just like, okay, I'm going to just do the indie artist thing again. That's fine. Um, because I think there was, you know, moving to Nashville, like there's some things that are bright and shiny and like, you know, and 
I felt like I wanted that shiny record deal because it validated something or, you know, and um, I was chasing that, but then I was morphing my music and myself to try and get that. And it just wasn't authentic. And it just, did, I mean, it didn't work. It doesn't work as it wasn't me. So I love the story <laughs> of what the scene looked like when you actually did sign your first record deal. It was 15 years in the making. You're in the record label office. Can you set the scene and what that moment meant oh, for you? This is even better. I was actually home. I was nursing my six, seven-month-old baby. I had yoga pants on and my hair in a bun. And my lawyer just came to my house and goes, here's your record deal papers. And I remember, like, I've got this really great picture of, like, a baby on my hip. And I just look like a total mess and I'm signing my record deal. <laughs> and I was like, this is not how I pictured it at all, but isn't this just the best? <laughs> and I love that I just was like 100% me and a mess um, at that moment. And to find a partner too, Monument Records is such a great partner because, um, you know, they are... They were searching for artists that kind of fall between the cracks, right? And kind of don't live in one world. And, you know, they just let me make the music that I want to make and figure out a way to support it. And so it's been an awesome partnership. So, so your yeah. your first album, Starfire, um, is filled with songs that you were writing just for you, like you were just talking about. Um, not for radio executives or anything like that. Um, as someone who writes music for other people how do you switch from thinking of writing as work versus writing for passion yeah there is a little bit of a switch and it's it's hard to define but some of it is even thinking about melody and if you're writing a song for radio you know it has to kind of fit in this formula that's like <laughs> repetitive it sounds hooky um and so your, you know, approach for like writing for radio, like your tool belt gets a little bit smaller because you have to be, you have to fit this kind of sort of little box. And so writing for myself, that little box goes away and everything's like kind of blown open. <laughs> and I can, I can sing a weird, strange melody if I want to, if it, if it makes me feel something, if it makes me feel happy, um, I can squish a bunch of words in there that are like, you know, phrased very strangely because I want to, because it's my record that I'm making. <laughs> Where if you are writing for commercial radio, you might want to straighten it out a little bit or be more concise. And so it's definitely like two different ways of of writing. I mean, one is not better than the other. I, I just feel a little more free when I take that box away. Mm. I actually work in radio, um, public radio, <laughs> not, Beautiful. Yeah, not commercial radio, but I have worked in commercial radio and I do understand, I mean, somewhat of what that world is like. And it's rough. It's interesting. I, I want to know if you what you know about as like someone who writes songs specifically for radio, like what you know about like an average commercial radio listener. Oh, the average listener. So if you're writing for pop radio... You are writing for mm, 12-year-olds, 
mostly. Isn't that who you're writing for? I think your target market is teenage kids. And so you think about Justin Bieber, Selena Gomez, Megan Trainor, like you think about all the people going to their concerts and it's a lot, right, of high school kids. Do you have is to that, am I right on that? Do you have to like it sounds like I mean like I'm that's thinking like, like commercial, it, that's like top forty, is it, right? Is K pop on commercial radio yet? I don't know if it is. Do you have to keep Katy up Perry's with those another great trends? Another great example. I, I have not gotten into K-pop. I haven't listened. I think it. I, I'm. I think it's coming. We might want to YouTube it. I think it might. Okay, I'm gonna YouTube it after we talk <laughs> for sure. Yeah, because like the the way that um, the commercialization of radio. I mean, I could talk about this for a long time, but like in thinking about. You're from Minnesota, and that's where Prince is from. When I was a kid, Prince was on Top 40 Radio, along with Indigo Girls, Whitney Houston, wow. and Pearl Jam. So different than now. Right. Wow. That's crazy. It's <laughs> just, like, the further, like, turning turning music into, like, a commercial commodity sort of has changed it the has. landscape. And it's, well, it's interesting now because all of those artists you listed would probably fit on, like, AC, like the adult contemporary radio station. So there's different stations now, depending on the demographic. So there's your top 40, there's the AC, top 40. And then there's more of like the public radio, which you get a little more indie vibes, right? Totally. And so, I mean, the radio world is so weird to me. Yeah, it's weird. But it's it still is such an incredible tool as an artist to get your music out there. It really is. And it's how you make money as a songwriter, honestly, because people don't buy records anymore. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah, I would imagine. Like a Megan Trainor song is going to get more royalties than like... Um, like a more indie, like a, I'm trying to think. Like the Black Keys or something, if you wrote a right. song. Right, <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah, because even, I mean, streaming, just because of the way it is, it doesn't, it, it pays the artist well, um, but it, but the songwriters, there's still, still a big gap there in, like, mm. paying. So radio still wins. Well, this, this <laughs> is a very uh, interesting side tangent about radio. Um, I love it. I could talk all day about radio. <laughs> I want to talk about This Town is Killing Me. It's a song on your first record inspired by a gig where you're playing a very emotional song on stage, but no one was paying attention. They're all talking and drinking. It seems like quite yep. an industry scene. Um, right. <laughs> the song is clearly about how rough it can get in Nashville, and that gig sounds sound like it was pretty bad. What happened for you after you wrote that song when it came to like dealing with that struggle? Like, were there certain gigs you wouldn't take or situations you wouldn't put yourself in? Oh, wow. I would say as I've gotten older, I've gotten better at saying no <laughs> to those kind of scenarios. Just through learning, just through being like, oh yeah, if I go and play this bar for this event, you know, it's not going to be maybe that worth it or no one's really going to listen. And so, um, yeah, since I've written that song, I do feel like I've learned a lot. <laughs> what do they say? The first step is admitting or, or noticing. Admitting or, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> These bar gigs suck. I don't have to do yep. them. I don't have to do them no, at that's all. That's the beauty of it. <laughs> Thank you.
A supernova is the fullest expression of a star, and you said this record to me is my fullest expression of human emotion. I love there. there's a theme to your album titles, Starfire and Supernova. How did you come to those album titles, and who is the Outer Space fan? Yeah, I'm the Outer Space fan. Love it. Can't get enough of it. Um, but funny enough, Starfire is, isn't... Uh, like is a name of a guitar. It's not about space. Um, so I have this 63 Guild Starfire that was given to me by my dad. And um, I just love that guitar so much. And I loved the name about name of it. And so I wanted to write a song for it. And, um, and then accidentally, as I was starting to write for my second record, I wrote this song called Supernova. And as soon as we finished the song, I was like, this song is like the backbone of my record. And as once the, the record was finished, I thought, I know I just had a star title over here for my first record, mm -hmm. but this second record almost seems like more, even more of a full expression of who I am as an artist. And so why not? We'll just make it a little bit of a bigger explosion. It's Supernova. <laughs> it's great. Also, Thanks. the album covers like good job like matching up the themes thank you ah oh, thank you. Do you so fun to make do you think you'll continue that theme I mean you never know but I never know I've been thinking about that a lot lately I've got a lot of time to think <laughs> um I feel like probably two star records in a row are good I don't know if we're gonna go for a third I think I might shift to something different so you have hosted a night of all female songwriters called girls of Nashville um, and it sounds like it is disgraceful, like how women are treated in uh, country music. You know, there's like not very many opportunities. You know, there's that whole fucking tomatoes in the salad comment yeah, from yeah, the yeah. radio executive. Even. Yeah, so it was all like this <laughs> negative crap happening. Um, how have you seen those events adding positively to the exchange I mean, the tomato gate thing, I believe, happened six years ago, maybe seven years ago. Feels like yesterday. Um, it does feel like yesterday, but it actually was a minute ago. How it's changed positively, I mean, I'll be honest, it's taking a really long time for much change to happen uh, on the radio front, on females on the radio. Now, there are some females on country, on country radio specifically they're getting up there, and it's awesome. That's great. But there still could be way more. And there are a shit ton of really talented females that should be on the radio that are my friends, and it makes me crazy that they're not. So, but I digress. <laughs> I think that something positive that has come from that, and I mean, honestly, I believe our show has been, it kind of was birthed out of that a little bit in the sense of, like, people are saying, where are all the females on the radio and, you know, my friend Heather and Maggie and I started this show and we're like, well, here they are. They're writing the songs instead, or they're just be putting out their indie records. They're making their own way and their own lane. And so we created this show to kind of showcase, cool, where are the women on radio? Well, they're just all over. Here they are. And, you know, we created this to kind of celebrate all of this incredible talent. And the list, I mean, we've had so many insane females play our night and go on to get record deals and go on to just get number one songs. And um, so it's been so fun to create that community. 
But I think another thing that has been positive (laughs) in the wake of that is that women are just digging their heels in and they're making their own way. And so they're writing really great songs that are undeniable and getting cuts. And they are just putting out music independently because they can. And so, you know, it's still, we still have a long way to go, but I think we're on our way. (laughs) I love that. Um, I read in a couple places that you enjoy getting out in nature, and it sounds like you're in a very good yes. place for that experience Love now. Love me some nature. Yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> what is your connection to nature, and like, how does it make you feel when you're outside? Do you notice if you haven't been outside in a while? Big time. I have to get outside every day. It's good for my brain. It's good for my soul. And it is so, like, when I'm feeling, like, foggy brain or I'm feeling crabby or I'm feeling sad, like, it is it is an instant healer to just go outside, take a deep breath. Oh, man. And just breathe in the fresh air. It's, it's important uh, to both my husband and I to just to get out of the city to go hiking, go to the beach. We love Colorado. We try and go there at least once a year, if not more. I also find it's like a great way to clear my head and get rid of the noise. Go nature. Yes. (laughs) All right, Caitlin, one more ridiculous thing before we let you go. It's called the lightning round. Oh, I love these kind of things. Yes. All right. Here we go. Oh, God, I'm scared. Don't be scared. (laughs) What is the first song you learned on the guitar? I... No, I learned D-A-G, but what song was it? This is not lightning. This is really long. I don't know. This Did you share the chords with us, D-A-G? D-A and G were the first chords that I learned. We'll accept that. We'll accept, accept that. Accept that. Yeah. I don't even know what song it was. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, Batman or Superman? Superman. Karaoke song. Uh, Hit me maybe one more time. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when did wait? To, uh, you were like fifteen in two thousand one, so that's about right for "Hit Me, Baby, One More Time." Yeah, that's about right. Yeah, you were, you had, a, you were at the unfortunate <laughs> cusp of the millennium, where Backstreet that Boys is, and Britney Spears yep, had taken over. That's the truth. I was, I stand Britney Spears for a long. Time. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, favorite radio station as a kid. What kind of station was it? It was K102, country music, baby. Nice. (laughs) Dogs or cats or something else? Dogs, big ones. (laughs) What is your coffee order? Usually black. Nice. Respect. Favorite U.S. city? Oh, there's so many. Denver. First album you bought with your own money? The first album, the first CD I remember, I don't know if I bought it with my way. The first CD I remember getting, though, because I grew up on cassettes, the first CD I got was Celine Dion (laughs) and Shania Twain, Come On Over. Yes. Setting yourself up for success. (laughs) Uh, We know your first concert was Trisha Yearwood, Garth's wife. Um, Yes. What is the last book you read? I am in the middle of reading... Because it's taking me forever because it's this big. But it's, calling, it's called Feeling Good. And it's about uh, cognitive therapy. Oh. 
Really fun stuff. Just getting your brain all nice and healthy. Nice light reading. <laughs> it's really light. Clean That's it out. Take. It's a lot. To, <laughs> I know it's a lot to chew, so it's taking me a long time. <laughs> Dream collaboration. There's so many. Adele, Paul Simon, John Mayer. Good one. There's so many. Yeah, those are good. Okay. <laughs> when you had your voice, did you find out the gender or did you wait? No, I found out as early as I possibly could. I can't wait. <laughs> Flying or invisibility? Flying. <laughs> Star Trek or Star Wars? Star Wars. Wow. Lord of the Rings or Narnia? Narnia. Did you say Narnia? Yeah, Narnia. Nice. Where is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? <sighs> There's so many. It's so hard to pick. Switzerland, Interlaken. Great. The what? The freaking blue waterfalls is shooting out of the mountains. The the bluest, bluest blue river you've ever seen. That sounds amazing. Mind blowing. Yes. That sounds really good. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, thank you. I loved this so much. Thank you so, so, so much for your time and your great questions. Thank you. This is a blast. Yeah. Basic Folk is produced by Laura McCarthy and Adam Corey, with Laura taking the reins this week. Thanks to our business manager, Lindsay Myers. Alex Stanton of the band Townspeople does our music on Basic Folk. Basic Folk is part of the American Songwriters Podcast Network. I'm Cindy Howes. You can check out more information about this podcast anywhere that you listen. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, all of those. It is available uh, you can also go to my website, cindyhouse.net. There is uh, some show information there on each episode. I really appreciate you listening all the way to the end. I hope that you subscribe and then listen to all, like just like binge listen to all these episodes, just like sit down. And I think there's like almost 80 episodes at this point. So that wouldn't take you too long. Maybe like a full solid week of listening. That would probably work. Okay. Thanks for listening. I uh, will talk to you later. Okay, bye.